0: Have you ever been disappointed by a book's title? Uh, I came across this story, and yes, this is going to date me a little bit, but it was a story Ray Stedman told of a a gentleman who was walking past a bookstore, and as he did, he noticed in the window there was a book with a title, How to Hug. He thought, that seems like an interesting book. I wonder what that's about. So he went into the bookstore, and he grabbed the book off the shelf, and he found out it was volume four of an encyclopedia covering everything from how to hug. <laughs> now, I know that encyclopedias aren't used very much anymore, so you got to be a little older to get it, but, but I'm afraid sometimes that's similar to the church. We talk a lot about theology, about doctrine, but how often do we actually live the things we're learning? If you have your Bibles, would you go with me back to Romans chapter 12? We have moved from that section in the book of Romans that is dedicated to doctrine. Paul has delved as deep as any place in all of Scripture. He's explored the great truths and teachings of the faith. But as is his typical approach, he turns now to how we live. And he begins with the, the blueprints of a healthy church, and we've been making our way through this. As he begins with, it begins as every member surrenders completely, as we lay ourselves on God's altar, a living sacrifice. And we have to be careful not to, to think not to think too highly of ourselves, but to think soberly and accurately. We need to realize we're body, which requires and involves all kinds of of cooperation. And last week, we looked at the importance of understanding what our gifts are and how we can use those gifts in connection with others. This morning, we're going to talk about the subject of love. Several years ago, shortly after Renee and I were married, we attended a uh, Valentine's banquet. It was up in the cities. And the speaker made a point that I uh, has impacted me. He, he made the comment that if you want to see how important love is to society, all you have to do is listen to the radio. And it doesn't matter if you choose a secular or religious station, the majority of the songs are going to somehow revolve around love. Well, I I, I like to prove and verify, And, and so I was going, and as I was looking at it, I wanted to find out, are the majority of songs on the radio today about love? So I went to the top 100, and I checked out some of the songs. I have to be honest, I don't even know who most of these artists are, let alone these songs, and so I decided I would read the lyrics of a few of them to find out if they were actually about love. I have to be honest, I didn't read very many. Maybe that was love. I'm not really sure. But love is a huge part of our life. And in order for us to really be the people that we ought to be, we need to take time to love. Let me just begin by reading Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, where Paul writes these words, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your reasonable service or your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. And then I included the title. Now, titles are not inspired. In fact, they were added a thousand years after the scripture was written. But I think sometimes it does help us to understand at least one person's opinion what the rest of the chapter is about. Paul is going to jump into something slightly different. Most of what we have read thus far in the book of Romans is heavily dependent upon what preceded it. And oftentimes it has taken a fair amount of work to try and delve deep into what he's saying. This morning, I'm not going to say anything that will shock you. It's not something you probably don't already know. He's going to throw out, if you will, popcorn commands. Depending on how you want to count them, they're up to 21 different commands. And most of them you already understand. Now, it's are we willing to live them. But let me read him. Beginning in verse number 9, he says, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourself. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. For the few moments we have this morning, I really want to just talk about What does love in the church look like? I think Paul's going to break it out in two different categories. How do I love those of you in here? And then how do I love those out there who may not like me? We'll get to that next week. But he begins by looking at the importance of love. So far in the, the gospel or in the book, Paul has used this word love only to speak of God's love towards us. In chapter 5, he says, but God demonstrates his love for while we were his enemies, while we were still caught up in our sins, while we were running away from him, Christ took upon himself the penalty I deserve, that you deserve. There is no greater demonstration in all the history of the universe than God Being willing to take human flesh, to walk amongst us, to live a perfect life, to die a sacrificial death, to take upon himself the eternal torment I deserve. That's love. And Paul in chapter 5 says that love not only brings us eternal life, but at the moment we place our faith in Christ, his spirit comes and it is poured into our heart by the Holy Spirit he's given us. And so we now not only can experience the love of God through salvation, but we experience it on a daily basis as his spirit pours into our life everything that we could possibly need. And in chapter eight, Paul ends the chapter with this amazing statement. What then shall, separate, shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or the sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from From the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul in the first eight chapters is going to explore what that love looks like. But in chapter 12, he pivots and he begins to explore what love looks like between each other. Now, if you were here last week, we spent the majority of our time looking at the gifts from Romans 12, but we also jump back to 1 Corinthians because in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, the Apostle Paul goes into much greater detail on the spiritual gifts. And I find it really fascinating that it's the same pattern he does in Romans 12. Here are the gifts. Oh, we really need to talk about love. And then let's get back to how we use the gifts And so let me just read. I I know that 1 Corinthians 13 is most often associated at weddings, but it really isn't a wedding passage. This is how we as the church should relate to one another. Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a resounding gong or clanking cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that could move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. Love does not delight in evil but delights to rejoice with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails but... Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish things, childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. I know that's lots of scripture. I know that's a long introduction to get to the subject of love. But I fear there is no word in the English language used more and understood less than the word love. As I was looking at the, the, the passage before us, I really wanted to come up with a really nifty outline. I failed. Some of the uh, people I read and studied and listened to had some really cool outlines. I just couldn't follow them. So I'm just going to list the commands that Paul throws out. He begins with love must be sincere. The word for sincere in the original language is actually the word hypocrisy with an A in front of it, which in Greek means the absence of hypocrisy. Do you know what hypocrisy is? We have some pretty good ideas, but in the original, in the first century, hypocrisy was not necessarily a bad thing. It's what all actors were called. In fact, my guess is if you see a picture like this, you know what they're talking about. Those masks have been associated with drama clear back to the first century. Because for first century drama, an actor would wear a mask to tell you who he was. Abigail, my second daughter, is employed by the Kansas City Repertory Theater. She loves drama. I didn't know this, but most of the major theaters close during the, the summer and send their employees out to what they call summer stock. Last summer, she went to Scotts Bluff, Nebraska, and was at Theater West, and they put on a number of plays. My family and I had a chance to go out. I think they put on five or six. We saw one of them. The play was 39 uh, steps. It was allegedly Hitchcock meets Celerity. It, It had four actors. These two played 150 different characters over the course of the play. And it all depended on which hat they were wearing, which costume they were wearing, which accent they were wearing. In fact, there were times where they would switch hat and become a different person. And it was hilarious. It was fun to watch. And I was really impressed by their acting skill. That's a hypocrite. Somebody who, depending on which hat he's wearing, which costume he has on, that's how he responds. Paul's point is you and I cannot be a hypocrite in the way we love. The way we love this morning needs to be exactly the same way we love tomorrow morning or Wednesday morning or Friday morning. It doesn't matter who we see, who we meet, when we meet. We shouldn't put on a different hat. And today I love you. Tomorrow, I don't know you. I want nothing to do with you. Paul is saying that the love that God has given to us, that same kind of love needs to be lived in the body, irregardless of what time or place or person you're faced with. Now, I get all of us have friends that are easy to love. And acquaintances that may not be. But as a follower of Jesus, I have to strive to be the same regardless of who it is that I'm talking to. Think back this last week. Did you walk the other way to avoid someone? Did you try and avoid somebody you didn't really want to talk to? Or can you say you treat everyone the same? Now, I recognize none of us are perfect. Please don't hear me to say that I am perfect at this because I'm lousy at most of it. But the goal is to treat everyone every time with the same love. I love without hypocrisy. And now we get into really uncomfortable territory. I'm not sure in our current culture there's anything more despised than hate. Is hate ever good? Paul says it is. Several generations ago, there was a move in the church to emphasize the love of God. Now, please don't misunderstand me. God is love. But the move to emphasize the love of God began to diminish God's holiness. And we don't like to talk much about the holiness of God. But God cannot, not will not, cannot tolerate evil in his presence. And the reason why God will bring such incredible and intense judgments in the Old Testament is because God cannot tolerate evil in his presence, and it must be judged. Now, thankfully, God is perfect and is able to balance his love and his holiness, most of us tend to be better at one or the other. But Paul says that if I am going to love you, I cannot love the evil I find in you. Now, he doesn't say hate people. Please don't misunderstand. He's not commanding us to hate certain people. No, to hate certain acts. I I, I fear that because we live in such a, a graphic society, where pictures are everywhere, we get desensitized to evil, and it doesn't bother us. When was the last time your stomach turned by something you saw, and you said, "God cannot be happy with that." In order for me to love you properly, I must hate evil. but I must cling. To what is good. Paul is going to say that, or I should say, the Sol, the Solomon in Proverbs is going to say there are six things that the Lord hates, seven things that are an abomination to him haughty or proud eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are, make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, one who sows discord among brothers. Do we have the same hatred? But thirdly, he says we need to cling to what is good. The word cling is a fascinating word. It's actually a marriage word. In Ephesians chapter 5, it's the great marriage passage. If you were at Paul and Ashley's wedding, I had a chance to speak. Went to this passage. Paul talks about the importance of the role of the husband, the role of the wife. And he bases everything upon Scripture, as he always does. And he says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother... And it's the same word, cling, glued, be united to his wife. Last weekend, Abigail was up. She came for Renee's uh, play that she put on at the school. She also had a number of things she had to do. She had to get a marriage license, so they went to the courthouse on Monday. I have to remember to pick that up tomorrow. Uh, I just said that for my benefit, not yours. (laughs) We transferred a car into her possession. Renee was helping her with some of the wedding planning, going through a bunch of things and talking about the ceremony and was saying, do you want somebody to do music? Do you want somebody to read scripture? Do you want a unity candle? Abigail is kind of her own person. A unity candle, why would I do that? And Renee said, well, it shows the beauty of two lives wed together. Well, maybe you can do something different. There's sand, sometimes they pour sand together. There's this rope, and she says, I want a birdhouse. <laughs> now, before you think that too strange an idea, my brother-in-law did my oldest niece's wedding about a decade ago, my, my parents' first granddaughter that got married, and he took two birdhouses And he had one of the walls to be the roof of one of the other birdhouse. And he said it there and he said, These two birdhouses are glued together and they cannot be separated without permanently damaging each of them. It's actually a pretty graphic picture of the word Cling. That when we are so glued to what is good, if the good is removed from us, it's going to damage us in ways that are irreparable. Just as a husband and wife, even in death, my mom was married to 60 years from my dad and even though he's passed on, she's not the same person. Because they have so been united, glued, clung together. That they're not the same without each other. Paul says that you and I need to learn to cling to each other. Fourthly, he says that we need to be devoted. The word devoted is a really kind of unique word because it actually means of the same womb, the same family. That you and I, because we have been born again, we go back to John chapter 3, that wonderful passage with Jesus and Nicodemus as he talks about anybody who wants to enter the kingdom of heaven must be born again. And once we all are born, we are of the same birth, the second birth. And my guess is, at least I hope, your experience is such that there's something unique about family. My dad's passing was hard. But one of the blessings is I had a chance to spend an extended time with my family. My whole family lives in the Twin Cities. I don't get to see them nearly as often as I want. And yet it always amazes me, even though we've been separated by five hours, 300 miles, and sometimes months on end, when you get together with family, there's just a bond. And Paul is drawing from that idea that we are a family, and we must learn to practice Philadelphia. I learned something this week. Maybe you don't care about history trivia. But one of the things that has always bothered me is why in the world is the capital of the state of Pennsylvania called Philadelphia? I'm sorry, there are not too many places I would less describe as the city of brotherly love. They, they snowballed Santa Claus on numerous occasions. I mean, come on, what kind of city is it? Why are they called Philadelphia. If you go back to the history of our nation, if you study its origin, you remember back when there were 13 colonies, most of the people coming across were coming for religious persecution. Most who came across set up colonies where you were required to worship in a certain way if you were in the north you were expected to be a puritan you had to follow the the congregational church if you were in the south you were expected to be part of the church of england you were anglican if you were in parts of virginia you were roman catholic if you were in rhode island roger williams began the baptist faith and everybody in rhode island was baptist pennsylvania decided we're going to start a colony it doesn't matter what religion you are. And our capital city is going to be the place where everyone is welcome. Everyone is treated the same. Let's call it Philadelphia. I don't know if they've succeeded or not, but the church needs to succeed. This needs to be the place where it doesn't matter who you are or what background you come from. It doesn't matter your economic status. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your color. It doesn't matter. All that matters is that you are here and we treat you with affection Amen. and love. I, I, I learned something that I didn't know. If you're in the hospitality industry, one of the rules that you're taught on day one is the rule of five and ten. The rule is that if you get within 10 feet of anybody in the store, you're expected to make eye contact with them. Wave. Acknowledge them. If you get within 5 feet of them, you're required to verbally acknowledge them. If the hospitality industry decides that we must go out of our way to make other people welcome, what do we in the church do? To make certain everyone here this morning is welcome. Devoted to brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. There's lots of difficulty in the translation of the above yourself. I like outdo one another in honoring others. It's a competition. How are you going to honor someone more Than I do. Are you going to honor anyone? We live in a world in which honoring others is becoming a bit of a lost art. In fact, I would encourage you to think back through last week. How many times did you intentionally go out of your way to honor anyone? Let me change the question. How this week? Will you go out of your way to intentionally honor someone? Card of encouragement. Phone call. Ask how they're doing. Shovel their snow. I hope not. (laughs) Do we go out of our way to make certain that others know that they are honored? One of the commentators I was reading was talking, sometimes we forget the context in which the book of Romans is written. In the city of Rome, someplace between uh, two thirds to three quarters of the people who lived within the city limit were slaves. And thus, as they gathered for church, it was a radical idea for a slave owner to honor a slave. Even something as simple as holding the door open for a slave could get the person ridiculed in public. And yet Paul expects the church to be a place where we don't have slave and free. We don't have rich and poor. We don't have men and women. We don't have ethnicity. We have a body in which we go out of our way to honor other people. How will you do that? This week, he continues down in verse number six. And yes, I'm speeding up because I'm going to run out of time and we'll be here the rest of the morning. But he says, Never lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual further, serving the Lord. Love enthusiastically. Would you describe your love for people in this body as enthusiastic? Do you have a, f- a zeal? Do you have a fervor? Are you willing to serve others? Going back to that illustration just a second ago in that first century, it was expected that the slave would serve the master. It was unheard of that a master would ever serve a slave. And yet we could go back to John 13, when the creator of the universe came and he disrobes and wraps a towel around his waist and grabs the feet of his disciples into his lap, the humblest act that could be performed in the Middle East. And he washes their feet. And he says, now you go and do likewise. Are we servants of one another? He he says we need to be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. The patient in affliction really kind of bothers me. Because I don't like to suffer. Maybe I'm unusual. Maybe you love suffering. I don't know. I kind of doubt it. But... We've been going through, I've been telling the, the lesson in Iwana on Wednesday nights, and we're going through the life of the Apostle Paul. You can't read the book of Acts without seeing Paul suffer. In fact, I, I, I would challenge you sometime to read a single chapter from, from Acts chapter 13 on to the end in which you don't see somebody throwing a rock at Paul stoning him, leaving him for dead, beating him up, imprisoning him, threatening to kill him, shipwrecking him. You want to talk about a man who endured affliction way beyond anything I can even comprehend. And yet he writes to the church in Rome, be patient in affliction, faithfully praying for the body. How much time did you spend last week praying for people in here? See, I I have to admit, if I'm honest, the majority of my prayer far too often revolves around me and the needs and struggles I'm going through. Read through all of Paul's letters. He begins almost every single one of them with a statement that I am praying for you. I can't imagine the hours Paul must have spent in prayer for those that he cared about. Number eight, love generously you want to know what hit me when I was coming to this point? If you were here last week, one of the gifts is giving. And now Paul is saying, yeah, even if you don't have that gift, you still have a responsibility to give. Uh, Maybe you are not specially gifted to give huge amounts, but all of us have an expectation to share with God's people who are in need, which is necessitates all kinds of things. We have to understand the needs people are going through. And then we need to do what we can to make certain that we can meet them. And then finally, he he says practice hospitality. Hospitality is a word that has largely changed since the first century. For us, it's having coffee with somebody, inviting somebody over to to eat, going out to lunch with them. In, In the first century, Christians were routinely chased from their homes missionaries who would attempt to to share the gospel would leave their homes and there was no place for them to stay. The inns in the first century were largely brothels. They were places of ill repute. A missionary, a, a Christian fleeing persecution wouldn't stay there. He was entirely, they were entirely dependent upon the generosity and kindness of others. If this morning a total stranger came to church and shared, I need a place to spend the night. Would you open up your house for them? One of the stories that caught my eye this week, probably because of all the things that are going on in Ukraine, was a pastor who had traveled to Ukraine uh, a decade or two ago. He was there to teach in a Bible college and, and he shared on the last night, all of the teachers, there were three of them, were invited to a home in paradise, in paradise. Ukraine. He said there was nothing paradise about it. It was the poorest place they had spent their entire time. They went into this house and they were invited into the back room of the house and in the back room there was a large table rough benches and a tablecloth over about a third of the table. He also said that he had never in his life been in a place with more flies. In fact, he wasn't certain he could eat without consuming some of them. He sat down and he tried to scoot to the end and they said, no, 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 you have to sit here. And in the middle of the table where the tablecloth was, there were three bowls, three cups, three sets of utensils. They were served some food and he was trying his best to not think about the flies until he started looking around and he noticed that everybody else seated around the table had to share a bowl, had to share a cup, had to share utensils. But those who had come from America to teach them of Jesus, they sacrificed extremely to make certain their needs were met. That's hospitality. As we conclude this morning, I I came across an illustration of the church using their gifts in harmony with one another. Tom Nelson pastors in Fort Worth, Texas, and has a large church with lots of talented people. We have lots of talented people too, but I didn't feel like asking anybody, so I found a clip on YouTube. I, I don't know if you've seen this clip or not, but it's an interesting clip. It, it took place about a decade ago in, in Spain. It begins with a gentleman who is incredibly talented, using his talent to play the bass in ways none of us here probably could. But my guess is you and I would grow bored if all we had a bass. I don't even know what song he's playing. It isn't long until a cello player comes, and at least she's playing the melody. I get the melody. I recognize that song now. It's Ode to Joy, written by Beethoven. But I have to admit, it wouldn't take me long until I got a little bored with the bass and the cello. But as the bass and the cello play, maybe we should add... Another instrument or two. Maybe we can add, I don't know, maybe a bassoon, a couple violas. As they play soon, others join them. And as they join them, the depth, the beauty of the music deepens. As each using their specific unique gift to make some incredible music. but we're only just beginning. As the group grows, we need a conductor. And as this group of individually gifted people use their gifts in combination with others, everybody notices. They stop what they're doing. And they gather to listen. Let's add some brass, maybe even some percussion, and see what that sounds like. And who knows, maybe even a voice. many reasons as crowd noise filled the plaza and then everybody stopped and listened. I'm convinced that when we as Christ's body use our different gifts for the good of each other, the world will notice. Father, I thank you for the chance to open your word. I I thank you for the love you have given us and I do pray the love that we will share with others. Help us this week to go and live in light of the love you've given us. For it's in your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen.